Welcome to the Leads Business Insights Podcast, featuring expert analysis to help you stand out from the herd. My name is Amanda Kramer. We are thrilled to be discussing how to prepare a company for acquisition with Leads Advisory Board member, Jane Miller, co-founder of Haven. Jane Miller has 35 plus years of executive experience in the food industry, working with both startups and Fortune 500 companies. Jane most recently was CEO of Lily's Sweets and has held several other CEO roles in the natural and organic industry, including Rudy's Bakery, Proyo High Protein Ice Cream, and Hannah Max Cookie Chips. The Leeds School has turned out more than its share of entrepreneurs who bring big ideas and business savvy to some of the most urgent challenges of our time. But oftentimes, they're so focused on innovation and growth that they don't consider what their exit strategy should be. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Leeds Advisory Board member Jane Miller to Leeds Business Insights. Today, Jane is co-founder and CEO of Haven, but previously she was CEO of Lily Sweets and helped prepare the business for its sale to Hershey. Today, Jane will walk us through what that process looks like, as well as the role your professional failures can play in preparing you to ultimately succeed. Welcome, Jane, and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Amanda. I'm really excited to be here today, and I'm very excited to talk to the Leeds audience. You are a master business scaler, having served as the CEO for several mega brands, as well as having scaled smaller brands and prepared them for acquisition. Most recently, you helped scale Lily's Sweets and prepare the company for acquisition by market conglomerate Hershey's. Can you share with us what are the key success factors in scaling a business that you may be interested in selling? I think the starting thing I would say is it is good to have the end in mind. If you do think that at some point you do want to exit the business as opposed to passing on to the next generation of your family, you want to think about it in a little bit different way. But what I would say on the outset is you can never depend that Hershey's, as an example, is going to be the buyer of Lily's. So you can't really actually predict that because there's so many different things that can happen. But it is helpful if from the outset you're thinking a bit about the fact that you do want to exit a business. So let's just assume that you do want to be that person uh, that will exit to whether it's a strategic or a private equity firm or maybe do an IPO at some point. But there is something where you will potentially not be involved in the business in the future. What I would say is the starting point is is establish a really well-run business because that will increase your options. And so what's a well-run business? When you're looking eventually at an exit, you're going to be be evaluated, I like to think on three things. You want to have robust top-line growth in an important segment. For us, we were in the confection and candy segment, and we had really, really strong growth over the years we were in it and became a market leader in low sugar. So you want to make sure from a top-line standpoint that you really have robust growth because that is going to make it very valuable to a potential company. And not just robust growth while you're running it, but also with this idea that you can, there's white space for the the company that buys it. So let me use Lily's as an example. We had gone from about $18 million in sales, and in three years, we'd gotten to $130 million in sales, which is a big increase on the top line. But we also hadn't really penetrated Costco or the convenience channel or food service or any other number of potential ways that Hershey's would be able to grow the business. So you want to be able to show this robust growth, but you also want to be able to show that there's places where the strategic or the potential buyer 
could take the business. So you haven't tapped in to every potential opportunity. So both a track record and an outlook for continued growth is very, very important. The second thing, and this is where I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, get off track, is you need a strong gross margin. And what that means is that when you take out the cost of the products, the cost of distributing the products, and also any trade spending, that you have a robust gross margin so that you can fund marketing spending, you can um, fund people expansion, you can fund miscellaneous other costs. And so a lot of entrepreneurs will sort of say, well, I, you know, if a big company buys me, they can get a strong gross margin because there's going to be so many synergies. Well, what makes you really attractive to a potential buyer, again, whether it's a strategic or a private equity firm, is that you already have a strong gross margin. You already know how to make money on this. And that what happens if somebody else buys you is they can actually improve on that, not try to get it good to begin with. And the third part of what I call the trifecta is a strong EBITDA margin. So not only do you have robust growth, strong gross margins, but you're really managing your spending below the gross margin line. And where a lot of companies can kind of get out of hand is by hiring too many people, not being really cautious about the um, positions that you bring on board, realizing that when you're a small company, you're gonna have different needs than when you get to be a big company or a medium-sized company. And so really being thoughtful about your spending below the line. I'm homing in on something you mentioned there, Jane, about managing the business. What about from the perspective of people and the leadership team? How is that looked at if a larger company is potentially thinking about acquiring a smaller company? Well, I think uh, it totally depends on uh, the company that's acquiring you. But what I would say is uh, forgetting about for a second the the uh, company that's looking at you, making sure you have the strongest team that you possibly can around you and not being afraid to hire people that are more talented than you are. And in fact, being really kind of critical of yourself in terms of what your skills are and adding complimentary people that will even make the business stronger. Because you just, you know, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Every pitch that I've been on to sell a company, we've always talked about how strong the management team is. Um, and that uh, would be an important factor when they looked at buying us. But, you know, in many cases, the company will not keep the management team. Or in other cases, they may want to run it as a standalone. But again, you keep your options open if you have a really, really strong team that surrounds you. And, you know, one of the biggest questions I get is how do you figure out how to hire? Like, what are the positions that you really need as you're continuing to grow the business? And again, I would start very strongly with what is your skill set, and then how do you begin to surround yourself with people that complement that as opposed to bringing people on that are duplicative of what your skills are. In a recent interview, you had noted that one of your favorite phrases is to run your own race, a phrase I believe you adopted from Cheryl Strayed. In a world where it's so easy for entrepreneurs to compare themselves and their companies to one another, can you share more about what this phrase means to you and how it would be applicable to entrepreneurs you've worked with or seen out in the marketplace? Oh, gosh, Amanda, I love that question so much because it really is, whether you're an entrepreneur trying to to figure out how to scale a business or you're a lead student trying to figure out, you know, how you graduated the top of your class or really, you know, an, an alum just trying to navigate your way through the business world. I, you know, we all have this kind of pressure to sort of figure out how we create in this world the impact that we want to create. And Run Your Own Race, which I did get from Cheryl Strayed, 
was really about this idea that don't compare yourself to others. Set your own goals and compare yourself to what your goals were. And running your own race really is, I'm not about how fast I am relative to you, Amanda, but if I said I was going to do a 10-minute mile, did I do a 10-minute mile, regardless of whether you did a nine-minute mile or an eight-minute mile? And I think it's such an important concept because if you are very clear on what's important to you, then you can judge yourself against yourself. So when you're trying to start a business, not uh, not going on social media and saying, oh my gosh, there's somebody else that's doing exactly the same thing and they have more followers and they've got more customers and they've got more doors that they're in if you're a, a food business. But instead sort of say, okay, my plan was that I was going to get into Whole Foods in the Rocky Mountain division. And I am doing everything that I can to make sure my brand is successful there, even if I see somebody else that's gone national in Whole Foods. Or I see that, you know, I'm kind of still bootstrapping this and I have friends and family money. Get A similar company has just raised like $10 million from a private equity firm. How do I feel about myself? And maybe you're not ready for that $10 million. So running your own race really is and starts with you being very clear on what's important to you not what is important necessarily to your spouse or, you know, you're in school, your parents, you know, maybe um, someone else in your family that has high expectations for yourself, but instead to set your own guidelines on what success looks like. That is so helpful. And I think a really good grounding point for so many to remember to keep your eye focused on your goal, because it's so easy to look in the lane to your right or to your left and say, you know, I'm not doing enough, but that's not your path. Let's go back to where we started in terms of the Lily's acquisition. I think it would be surprising to some people to learn that it took over a year to prepare the business for acquisition once the negotiation process started. Let's peel back the, the curtain. Can you tell us more about what happened behind the scenes? Sure. I, first of all, let me let me start and say that, you know, one of the things that, that from the very beginning, we had amazing partners with uh, our private equity firm, which is VMG based out of San Francisco, and our founder, uh, Cynthia Tice. And so when I was able to come on board as the CEO from the very beginning, you know, we had at some point, we didn't think it would be maybe as soon as it was an exited mind. And so as a team, we really worked strongly on that trifecta from the very beginning. It wasn't something that just happened a year before the company actually sold. So I think for anyone who's thinking about a business and you think about your partners, you know, just realize that you want to have, again, the end in mind um, from the beginning, not when you actually decide to sell. But yes, to your point, I mean, it was almost a year from the moment that we identified investment bankers that we could potentially partner with to actually selecting one to going through the process of building a very strong presentation that would be interesting to a number of different buyers, uh, to actually doing uh, the presentations to those buyers, to then having a select few buyers that were very interested go through due diligence with us to dig even deeper into the business uh, to finally having cert final offers. So, you know, from August 2020 until June 2021, we were in that process of, uh, that I just described from hiring a banker to actually closing the deal with Hershey's. So it definitely is something that might take a little bit longer than you might expect, just especially if you want to make sure that you are really playing the field, letting the right number of people know about your business 
uh, that it is available to be potentially purchased, and then really vetting the potential buyers for not just money, but also cultural implications and implications for the employees that would be joining the the company that would be acquiring you. You know, and, and every process, Amanda, is different. But I think for us, it was that kind of a robust process from beginning to end to really get the right buyer at the right price. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a very intentional process on both sides of the transaction. You had mentioned that the presentation is incredibly important, and often you'll talk about the management or leadership team in that presentation. Would you be able to share with us other key components to a successful presentation when you're pitching your business? Our three key things were that there was a huge macro trend that was going on, which was people were trying to cut back on sugar. In fact, 80% of the mainstream consumer was trying to cut back on sugar. And this is an important, uh, important point which is if someone's going to sell the business, is what is the context that somebody wants to buy it in? For us, what we were trying to represent was that Lily's, for all the success that we'd had, we were barely scratching the surface on something that was very mainstream. And a company like Hershey's has got huge household penetration, would be very attracted to that because they're mainly in the sugar business. And so what we tried to present to them and, and to the other potential buyers was that uh, low sugar was a big idea that it wasn't niche, it wasn't a fad, it wasn't something that was going away. It wasn't something that was only for a certain economic group. You know, like only rich people are getting back on sugar, you know, and it was really this concept that the mainstream consumer of all age groups and all economic groups were really interested in that. That was kind of the big picture to start with. The second thing really was about the fact that Lily's was really unique, that we were the first product to market that had great tasting low sugar products with a clean label. And this was really important from our positioning, which was to say, okay, not only are people looking for low sugar, but what we know is that they're not going to make a sacrifice with candy. That 87% of consumers, the number one reason why they buy a chocolate product is for taste. And so what we wanted to represent in our presentation was that Lily's was unique in that, and that we had an amazing tasting product, but also with one that was very on trend in terms of a clean label. So no ingredients you can't pronounce or, you know, anything that would not be accepted at Whole Foods. And then thirdly, we talked about the management team, that it really was the group of people, not just the management team, the whole team, that was really our secret sauce that kind of brought it, uh, brought it all together. So I do thinking about a presentation on how they want to sell the business is first understand the big context of how how it's relevant. So in our case, people are trying to cut back on sugar. What's the unique differentiation of the business in a very crowded category? And ours was we were first to market with a delicious product that had a clean label. And then, you know, what made it so really, really special for us was that we had a, a, an amazing team that we wanted to actually showcase. Then in the guts of the presentation, we would go into a lot more detail around each one of those topics because what I didn't talk about at the outset was how we made a lot of money. And that's an important thing. You know, we didn't talk about the loyalty of our consumers and how we have really strong repeat rates. And that's why people come back to that. You know, why we had so much, as I mentioned earlier, white space that although we were doing a great job in the natural channel and with a number of key strategic partners like Target and Walmart, there were still a lot of other customers that we hadn't penetrated. So it really is trying to understand, again, the big context, what makes you unique, 
And then why the company should buy you because they can expand that to channels that you're currently not in. You know, by all accounts, the Lily Suites acquisition was a success. Um, But you've also been open about the fact that you've worked at the helm of failed businesses or startups and that failure not only makes success sweeter, but it's also a crucial component to achieving success. Can you share with us some of the lessons you've learned that contributed to this successful Lily Suites acquisition? Gosh, there's so many factors that that contribute to success. And let me maybe start with, if you've ever had a, a great success, don't ever assume it was all because of you. Or the other side of that same coin, which is if you have a great failure, don't ever feel like it was all because of you. So with Lily's, you know, I was really blessed in the sense that we did have this huge macro trend that was going on. Uh, we did have a founder who had really created an amazing product. We were first to market, so we had that sort of opportunity. And we had a team of people that uh, just did some amazing things and aggressively went after sales and marketing. But we actually had very strong financial management. You know, in many cases with young companies, you don't have the right funding to be able to make the business work and you're trying to really bootstrap it. So. You know, I think what I've learned over the course of my career is that, you know, every success I've had, I've had some role in and every failure I've had, I've had some role in. And if you kind of take it for that, which is what did you learn? You know, a great example for me at Lily's was that I I was so convinced that we needed to get a peanut butter cup to market because it was the number one thing that that consumers were showing on Instagram that they were making with our products were their own peanut butter cups. And I was like, oh my goodness, who wants to make their own peanut butter cup? Let's get a peanut butter cup to market. And, you know, Cynthia, the founder, had been super stringent about product quality. I mean, her rule was it had to taste as good as full sugar products. And I was like, you know, I think on this one, we can probably pull our standards down just a little bit because I'm so, I just know that this product is going to be better than any other product that's in the market that's low sugar. Well, I had forgotten the cardinal rule of why Lily's was so successful. We weren't comparing ourselves against low sugar products. We were comparing ourselves against full sugar products. And we rushed something to market that was the best low sugar product on the market, but it wasn't as good as a Reese's. And um, we actually had you know customers that, did, that complained about the product. We had consumers complained, and we were very fortunate that I had an amazing head of um, operations, Phil Mason, who was able to get a really good partner for us uh, who developed an amazing product. And we were able to take that to market. But you know what? I probably wasted nine months of the company's time and probably a lot of consumers uh, that, that might not come back and buy our peanut butter a cup again because they didn't have the same experience that they would have expected from Lily's. So, you know, what I really learned from that was even when you're in the height of your success, which was with Lily's, you can't let your standards down for what is the thing that clearly differentiated us from other customers, or excuse me, other uh, competitors. Wow, Jane, thank you for taking us on that journey and walking us through some of the failures, even within Lily's, um, that you were able to glean lessons from and say, okay, we're going to look at who we are, and we're going to do this differently moving forward. I think that that is really helpful. And and that really is a, a key LB idea or a key takeaway in terms of leveraging previous failures or lessons 
to achieve future success. And you'd mentioned the importance of self-awareness, really being intentional about learning the lessons from those failures and um, just making sure that you utilize those insights as you move forward. Is there any other advice that you would give to our listeners about how to best leverage previous failures or lessons to achieve future success? You know, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because the thing that, that came to mind was to not let failure scare you to not fail again. Because the fact is that I think in my career, I've learned more from the things I haven't done right than the things that I have done right. And I do think that if you keep putting yourself out there and taking a chance and realizing that literally, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you pick yourself up and you do it again. It just takes, it kind of bruises your ego a little bit. But uh, again, I think uh, it just it just really helps, I think, make you a better leader and a more insightful person if you push the envelope. I mean, if you don't fail, that means you kind of haven't pushed yourself hard enough, I think, in some ways. I think so many entrepreneurs in particular are afraid of failure, when in reality, to some extent, it's inevitable and important in terms of what you may do next. You had mentioned that Lily's likely lost some customers with the launch of the peanut butter cup. Do you have any advice about how to manage that, particularly as a natural foods company? If you've launched a product that did not was not well received in the marketplace, how do you address that and how do you win back your consumers? Gosh, uh, it's hard. I think the good news is, is that our product wasn't a terrible product. It just wasn't a great product, <laughs> you know? And so it wasn't like, you know, you'd come to market with something that was, you know, was absolutely horrible. You know, I think what it's all about trust. And I do think for us, what we did was we tried very hard from a social media standpoint to let people know that we had a new and improved product with a creamier center. And then I think as we introduced other new products, we made sure we didn't make the same mistake again. So we came out with a line of white chocolate products which were one of our most successful rollouts, but we were very, very conscious about making sure we compared ourselves to the full sugar, the full sugar comparison. But I do think it depends on the brand. You know, I think being authentic and admitting that you could do better and being humble, I think is something that, that was part of our DNA and that might not be a part of every company. I do think that the consumers really resonate with companies that are authentic, that realize that they're making mistakes. Um, but that also want to keep making products that are better and doing better with the consumers. So it's kind of an interesting balance between kind of admit that maybe you could have done better, but you don't spend too much time on it and get to the next thing and just realize that you want to keep working on building trust. And the best way you do that in a food product is to make sure that your products deliver for consumers. Absolutely. And Jane, what we're getting from you is very much the fabric of what it sounds like encompassed the the Lily's brand, which is, okay, this happened. I know the game plan for what we need to do to do better. Let's go do it. There's nothing that I hear from you about getting drugged down or feeling um, defeated by some of these um, lessons that you've learned. It's very much, okay, and let's keep moving forward, which I think is really important for for people to get a glimpse of and to see directly from you. Well, one of the one of the values that we had as a company which I think uh, is really important is this concept of assume the best, which is that everyone has the intention to do the best job that they can. Everybody has the best intention for Lilies to be successful. 
But along the way, we're going to make some mistakes. And along the way, you're not going to agree with people. And along the way, you might not understand why decisions are made. But if you always come back to this idea, we're trying to do the best job that we can, that it kind of elevates the discussion from pointing fingers to saying like, Jane, why did you introduce this peanut butter cup? That was wrong. Instead, to sort of say, wait a minute, we just reserve the right to keep getting better all the time. I, I like to say we make the best decision we can with the information we have at the time. And sometimes you get more information as you go along, which allows you to make better decisions. Sometimes something may have failed because you didn't have perfect information or the market is changing very quickly and you didn't react quickly enough. But you made the decision at the time when you had the best information that you had. So I do think it's this kind of permission to um, make mistakes, but also assume that others can make mistakes too. And that you sort of assume the best, which is again, that everybody has the same positive intent. We just go at it in different ways. I think that's a really important idea and could be another LB idea and key takeaway for our listeners is remembering that assuming the best, even though others may come at it from a different perspective, everybody's rowing in the same direction. Jean, I have read that you are a proponent of entrepreneurs having their own personal advisory board. Can you tell us what a personal advisory board is and why you recommend them? Thanks so much for asking that, Amanda, because it really is, I think, the core of developing a successful business is surrounding yourself not with just a great team of people that you've hired, but people around that you can trust. And so a personal advisory board, imagine it's almost like a board of directors you'd have for a company, but these are people that you have selected that, that can surround you and you can go to for advice. Now, a lot of people are like, well, how is that different from a mentor? You know, in some ways, a mentor is someone that you go to for advice on a range of things, but an advisory board is more of a group of people that can be your resource for specific topics. So, for example, we'll say I'm an entrepreneur running Lily Sweets. Now, how do I surround myself with someone who can talk to me about finding a good investment partner? That might not be the same person as who knows a lot about distribution in the natural channel, which might be someone who's very different than someone who's got experience really building teams, which could be different from someone who knows how to be an expert in social media. So instead of necessarily hiring these people to be part of your team, especially when you're bootstrapping, making sure that you've got people around that you can go to to ask advice in a safe kind of environment. And you don't imagine that you'd ever pull all these people together like a board of directors, but instead being able to reach out to each one of them as you need them. And it's really important because one of the things I've seen with many entrepreneurs is it's, it can be kind of lonely. You know, you feel like you're the only person that is dealing with the issues that you're dealing with when in fact you're not. And I think if you could, you know, reach out to people that could help you out, it's very, um, it's very satisfying in some ways. And it also sort of gives you more of a sense of comfort about the decisions that you're making. So you may say, well, gosh, how do I get this personal advisory board? You know, it could be people that are already in your network. Um, it could be as easy as identifying someone like Jane Miller on LinkedIn and reaching out and saying, hey, Jane, I know you have a lot of experience having just sold a company. Do you have five minutes that you could spend with me to talk to me? Now, I might not join your personal advisory board, but I would be someone that you could reach out to for advice. And maybe if we developed a relationship, then I could eventually do that. So I think you know the starting point is the idea that you want to have people surround you to help you 
But to get there, build your network. Reach out to people that you don't know. The worst thing that's going to happen, again, it kind of goes to the failure thing, is you're going to reach out to someone on LinkedIn and they're going to say, um, I don't have time for you. Or maybe they don't answer you. But then you go into the next person. But I think it really is this idea of kind of building your network, seeing who can really help you out, and then you'll start to develop relationships with people that might want to even be a closer associate of yours and develop your personal advisory board. So thank you so much for that, Jane. And I think the one other piece that that we'd like to ask you about is what's next for you? There's been the successful acquisition. Tell us more about what you're working on right now. So... Yeah, right now I'm doing a couple of things. One is I've had the great pleasure of coming back to Rudy's Bakery that I was the CEO of uh, from 2008 to 2014. And I was uh, able to join the board a couple of months ago and be instrumental in the hiring of the new CEO, who's uh, Doug Rady. Uh, Doug was my head of uh, marketing and sales when I was the CEO, and he for the last seven years has been the CEO of Good Karma. And uh, Doug is one of the most incredible leaders that I've had a chance to work with in my career. And as I always like to joke with him, he is an incredible leader, but I I will actually take some credit for him becoming an even better leader. (laughs) So I'm super excited about him stepping into Rudy's uh, where I will, you know, as I said, be a board member and be able to work closely with him as a leader of this company. It's honestly one of the most exciting things that I've had happen to me. So first of all, I'm very excited to be back at Rudy's and to be a part of this wonderful company that was started about um, 45 years ago uh, by Sheldon Romer, who's also a great uh, inspirational leader uh, here in the Boulder, Colorado market. Uh, the other thing that I'm doing that is uh, is like nothing I've ever done before, I am a co-founder, as you mentioned a couple times, of a company called Haven. And uh, for anyone that wants to check that out online, it's T-H-E-H-A-E-V-N. Uh, thehaven.com. And uh, Haven is all about solving the chicken and egg dilemma, which is if you're a student, you can't get a job without experience, but you can't get experience without a job. And so we're working on helping young people, uh, specific college-age students, develop their uh, soft skills, uh, their skills to be able to prepare themselves to go into their first job, and then we're matching them with companies um, in micro-internships. And what's really, I think, unique about Haven is this really high-touch approach to uh, building student skills and then providing these internship experiences where you're not just sort of following somebody around in an internship. You actually have a very specific project with specific goals, and it really kind of is great on a couple levels. It gives students a sense of accomplishment, and that accomplishment builds confidence because they have had a very specific project. And it really makes companies excited about having interns because they have very specific deliverables that will help with the growth of the company. So my two co-founders and I and our first employee, the four of us, are really working hard at developing uh, matches between students and um, and, and companies. We have got a big uh, agenda on curriculum, on developing Haven members. And with your membership, you get this sense of community, you get additional training, and you get access to different internships. So it's probably the most exciting thing that I've done in my career. Our goal is in the next five years to hopefully have created about 5,000 internships and really be able to um, 
help that next generation of leaders uh, get jobs. So it's super exciting. Not anything like 35 years of being in the food business. It's new for me and it's kind of scary because it's outside my comfort zone. I've never really been a uh, a founder. You mentioned Jay Knows. Jay Knows is a free career advice website. So although I'm a founder of that, you know, it was kind of a one-woman show. So it wasn't involving co-founders and involving uh, companies and career centers at different uh, colleges and universities. Keep your eyes out uh, for The Haven because I think we'll be doing great things over uh, over the the months and years to come. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. It has been really insightful. Thanks, Amanda, for having me here. It's always a thrill to be involved with the LEAD School and whatever I can do to help. And uh, I hope everybody enjoyed this. And of course, you know, you can reach me at uh, jane at janenose.com with any uh, questions that you might have. Thank you again for listening to LEAD's Business Insights. And a special thank you to my guest, Jane Miller. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Leads Business Insights wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about our podcast series at leads.ly slash LBI podcast. We'll see you next time.